You are listening to episode one of One Minute and 43 Seconds, a true Unsolved Mysteries podcast. On the early morning hours of March 8, 2014, 227 passengers, along with 12 crew, boarded a red-eye flight from Kuala Lumpur International Airport to Beijing, China. The weather in Malaysia is hot, as per usual, but the weather forecast for that night was calm. All seemed normal as the flight took off and reached cruising altitude, with pilots making the typical calls to air traffic control. This was until contact suddenly stopped and the plane disappeared from radar screens. A routine sign-off by the pilot that indicated no sign of distress would be the last anyone would hear from the plane as it never landed in Beijing and none of the 239 people on board were heard from again. I'm your host Megan and this is the story of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Welcome to episode one, everyone. As I said, I'm Megan, and I don't want to take too much of your time at the beginning of the episode here, but I did want to share a little bit more information about the podcast, as this is a project I've been thinking about for a while. So if you're interested, please hang out after the episode to hear a little bit about this idea and what I'm hoping to accomplish with it. One thing I do want to say, though, because it is relevant to the case today, is the title of the podcast. Some of you may know this, but MH370 is one of my favorite cases of all time. It's boggled my mind ever since I read into it and researched it, and so I thought, what better way to pay a tribute than to name my Unsolved Mysteries podcast after it? So the title, One Minute and 43 Seconds, refers to the length of time between the final radio call that the plane made to air traffic control and to the point where it disappeared from radar screens. As we dive into the case more deeply here, you'll come to realize that 1 minute and 43 seconds is a critical time frame, because whatever happened to the plane happened in that short time frame. I plan to cover different unsolved mysteries on the podcast, but I wanted to start off with the one that inspired it all. So without further ado, let's get into MH370. On the night of March 8th, there were 227 passengers who boarded the plane from all over the world. The majority of the passengers, about two-thirds, were from China at 153. There were 50 Malaysians, 7 Indonesians, 6 Australians, 5 Indians, 4 French, 3 Americans, 2 Canadians, 2 Iranians, 2 New Zealanders, 2 Ukrainians, 1 Dutch, one Russian, and one Taiwanese. All 12 crew members were Malaysian. The pilot in command that night was 53-year-old Zahari Ahmad Shah. He was considered a senior pilot at the Malaysia Airlines with over 18,000 hours of flying. To his right was First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid. He was 27 and just had about 2,700 flying hours. Flight 370 was said to be Farik's final training flight before he took an exam. So the plane took off at 12.42 a.m. early on March 8th. It was a Saturday, 
and for the first 38 minutes of the flight, everything seemed completely normal. It's standard procedure for one pilot to be in charge of flying while the other pilot handles the radio communication. So before takeoff on the ground, it was First Officer Farik who was communicating with the tower. Then after he took off, he was flying the plane, so Captain Zahari was making the radio calls. At 1.01 a.m., 19 minutes after the plane took off, Captain Zahari radios back to the ground that they had reached flight level 350, or 35,000 feet, cruising altitude. Perhaps the flight attendants were beginning to start beverage service. At 1.08, Zahari confirmed again that the plane was cruising at 35,000 feet. The flight path from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing would have taken the plane over the South China Sea, then over Vietnam before it entered China from the south. So the typical practice for an international flight like this for, one's for one country's air traffic control to hand the pilots over to the next country's air traffic control whose airspace they were flying over. In this case at 119, when air traffic control instructed the pilots to check in with the controllers in Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam, Zahari acknowledged within a few seconds. This would be the last time anyone on the plane was heard from. So for those of you who haven't heard it before, I'm going to play a clip of the final transmission from the plane. Malaysian 370, so as you can imagine, this is where things go from completely seemingly normal to pure confusion. One minute and 43 seconds after that final transmission that you just heard, the plane disappears from radar screens in Malaysia. As soon as the captain signed off with air traffic control in Malaysia, they were supposed to change the frequency and check in with Vietnam, 12.9, as you heard. They never did, but Vietnamese air traffic control was slow to realize that the plane hadn't checked in. Air traffic control uses something called secondary radar, which depends on a transponder on the aircraft. And the transponder is essentially a device that receives a radio signal from the ground and helps identify the plane. And it's my understanding that there were two transponders on board MH370, and at 1.21 a.m., both of these were either switched off by someone on the plane or they failed. At the same time the transponder stopped functioning, MH370 was still being tracked by military radar, and it showed the plane turning slightly to the right before making a sharp left turn back towards Malaysia. According to military radar, the plane continued back over Malaysia before it made another turn, this one a right turn at the island of Penang, off the western coast of mainland Malaysia. It then flew northwest over the Strait of Malacca until it left the range of military radar at 2.22 a.m. over the Andaman Sea. It's important to note that while military radar showed these strange turns, there was still a lot of confusion on the ground as it was happening. We know the transponder was switched off or failed at 1.21 a.m. It wasn't until about 17 minutes later at 1.38 a.m. that Ho Chi Minh Air Traffic Control in Vietnam called Air Traffic Control in Malaysia to inquire about the whereabouts of the plane. MH370 was supposed to check in immediately after they signed off with Malaysia and entered Vietnam, and that handover never happened. Now, from the reports I've read and documentaries I've seen, this is quite a long time to wait to raise an alarm about this. 
This is a call that should have happened within five minutes. Pilots or air traffic controllers tell me if I'm wrong, but everything I've read seems to indicate that this should have happened right away. Over the next 20 minutes, the two air traffic control centers in Malaysia and Vietnam would exchange four more calls, none with new information. The first quote new information would be given at 2.03 a.m. when Malaysia told Vietnam that the plane was in Cambodian airspace. In the next eight minutes, Ho Chi Minh would call Malaysia for confirmation of this. There was a lot of back and forth, and it's kind of unclear. Uh, at some point, Vietnam confirmed with Cambodia that the plane did not enter Cambodian airspace, and it was not supposed to enter Cambodian airspace. At 6.30 a.m., friends and family of the passengers of MH370 were gathered at Beijing Capital Airport in China, awaiting the arrival of their loved ones. As the anticipated arrival time came and went, the families were left with no indication of any issue. It wasn't until 7.24 a.m. that Malaysian officials announced to the public that the plane had gone missing. If you're familiar with this case, I'm sure you know more details will come out about the flight later, but what I'm gonna do is kinda lay everything out as the world heard about it and then go back to the specific timeline and dive deeper into some of those details. The search and rescue efforts were launched around 5.30 that morning, which is just over four hours since the last communication with the plane. The search was originally focused on the South China Sea, which is where contact with the plane was lost. Without a clear explanation, a week later, the search shifted from the South China Sea through the Strait of Malacca to the Andaman Sea and eventually to the Southern Indian Ocean. This shift in the search was based on data that was released by a British satellite company called Inmarsat. Now, this was a service that Malaysia Airlines was using, and despite the aircraft systems being turned off, the plane was still communicating with the satellite in Marsat on the ground. Now, forgive me because I'm not the most technical person, but I'm going to try my best to explain this even though I'm not an expert, so just a proper warning. From my understanding, this was a satellite communication with the aircraft that was basically just a ping that would show not many details except for that the aircraft was operational. And it can also be analyzed to show the approximate location of the plane based on how long it takes the signal to establish a connection. Electronic communication, basically. And what investigators were able to determine from that data is that after the plane left the range of the military radar, it took a left turn towards the Indian Ocean and flew for seven more hours. So as the plane is due to land in Beijing and all the families are waiting at the airport, the plane is still airborne, hundreds of miles off course. The fate of the passengers at this point is unknown. We just covered the events as they happened on the early morning hours of March 8, 2014, when Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared on a routine flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. So what I want to do now is go over a summary of the timeline here, because we just covered a lot of details, and there's a lot of pieces uh, between the plane, air traffic control, the mysterious turns, etc. 
Uh, also, we're going to have pictures of the route the plane took as well as uh, timeline information posted on the Instagram page. So check that out at 143 Mysteries. So March 8, 2014, this is a very early Saturday morning. At 12.42 a.m., MH370 takes off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport with 239 people on board. 12.46 a.m., air traffic control clears MH370 to climb to level 350, or cruising altitude. 1.01 a.m., Captain Zahari Shah confirms they have reached flight level 350. 1.08 a.m., Captain Zahari confirms again that they are maintaining level 350. 1.19 a.m., Zahari makes the now famous final radio transmission where he responds to air traffic control's instructions to check in with Vietnam, saying goodnight, Malaysian 370. 1.21 a.m., the plane disappears from radar, but remember it's still being tracked by military radar. At this same time, it's shown on military radar, making a slight turn to the right, then a dramatic turn to the left, heading back over Malaysia. 1.30 a.m., the captain of another plane in the area attempts to contact MH370. While they are able to establish a connection, the other captain says he only heard, quote, mumbling and static. 1.38 a.m., Vietnamese air traffic controllers contact controllers in Kuala Lumpur to ask where MH7, MH370 is and why they had not checked in. 1.52 a.m., Flight 370 passes over the southern end of Penang Island. First Officer Fariq Hamid's phone establishes a connection with the cell tower, but no data is transmitted. The plane turns northwest along the Strait of Malacca. 2.03 a.m., controllers in Malaysia incorrectly inform Vietnam that the plane is in Cambodian airspace. 2.22 a.m., MH370 leaves the coverage of Malaysian military radar in the Andaman Sea. 2.39 a.m., a ground-to-aircraft phone call that would have been routed to the cockpit goes through but is unanswered. 3.30 a.m., controllers in Malaysia inform Vietnam that the information they provided about the plane being in Cambodia earlier was based on flight projection and not on aircraft positioning. 5.30 a.m., the watch supervisor in Kuala Lumpur activates a search and rescue effort. 6.30 a.m., MH370 misses its scheduled landing time in Beijing. Boards at the airport simply display that the plane is delayed. 7.13 a.m., a second ground-to-aircraft call goes through to the cockpit but is unanswered. 7.24 a.m., Malaysia Airlines issues a media statement that they have lost contact with MH370. 8.11 a.m., the last connection, or quote, handshake, as they call it, is established between the satellite and the plane. 9.15 a.m., the plane fails to respond to an automated message from the satellite, indicating that it was likely no longer airborne. One more thing I want to note about this timeline, because it's just easier for me to explain it at the end here, is the aircraft's satellite data unit, or the SDU. Sometime between 1.07 and 2.03 a.m., the satellite communication link on the aircraft is lost. 
This communication is called ACARS, which stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing Reporting System. The ACARS is used to transmit short messages automated between the ground and the aircraft. So at 1.07 a.m., there's a transmission made, and a half an hour later, which was the next scheduled automated message from the ACARS system, um, the transmission fails. And so it doesn't function again until a logon request is sent from the aircraft at 2.25 a.m. So to sum it up, the satellite stops functioning sometimes after 1.07 a.m., before 1.37 a.m., and doesn't come back until 2.25 a.m. So the loss of the ACAR system is either due to a power failure or interruption, or it can also be manually switched off by someone who knows how to do it. So there's a lot to make of this here. Uh, essentially, we have a plane that was en route to Beijing, uh, and suddenly, after a, a radio call that was supposed to be standard, uh, the plane disappears from radar, makes a series of bizarre turns leading it miles off course, and it ends up in the southern Indian Ocean. As we know, um, wreckage was discovered not till a year later in June 2015, um, and these were discovered on the east coast of Reunion Island and um, the east coast of some countries in Africa, which we'll cover a little more later. Um, but what do we make of all this? So first I want to go into the passengers. Uh, so as we know, there were 227 passengers on board MH370 that night, 12 crew members, um, two-thirds were Chinese nationals. I want to go over some of the, some of the people we have on board um, just to give you kind of an idea of, of who was on the plane that night. Now, the first two passengers I want to talk about um, are two that raised alarm bells when this plane first went missing. And that's, uh, forgive me because I, I may mispronounce these names, Poria Noor Mohammed Merdad and Delavar Sayed Mohammed Reza. Uh, and these were two Iranian men that were traveling on stolen passports. Um, and so obviously when this plane first went miss missing, and it was determined that these men were traveling on stolen passports. A lot of people's mind jumped to terrorism. However, this was investigated um, pretty thoroughly, and it was determined that these men had no connections to any terrorist organizations, and they were simply trying to seek asylum illegally in, in Europe. Um, one of the men's mother um, confirmed this, that he was, he was trying to get to her in Germany. Also on board that night were 24 Chinese artists, as well as five staff members that were traveling with them. Um, they were returning home after attending a cultural exhibit in Kuala Lumpur. Among these 24 Chinese calligraphers, um, was the oldest person on board, and that's 79-year-old Lu Baotang. Veteran martial arts expert and stunt double for actor Jet Li was also on board flight MH370. He is 35-year-old Ju Kun, uh, who'd worked on films such as The Forbidden Kingdom, and he was said to be in Malaysia working on choreographing a production. Sadly, many of the 
the people traveling on MH370 were traveling with family members, and so now um, many families are missing multiple members and even generations. Um, in particular, there were six members of one Chinese family that are, uh, went missing that night, uh, including a four-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. There were 20 staff members uh, on board from a U.S. technology company called Freescale Semiconductor, uh, which makes powerful microchips for industries, including defense, which is very interesting. Um, Twelve employees were from Malaysia and eight were from China. Fifty-year-old um, American Philip Wood uh, was traveling on board. He had just been offered a new job for IBM, the company he worked for. He was transferring to Malaysia from Beijing. Um, so he was back on his way to, he was on his way back to Beijing from Malaysia that night to um, help his girlfriend pack up and move their belongings. Um, the youngest passenger on board MH370 that night was Wang Mohang at 23 months old. He was returning from a week's holiday in Malaysia with his mother, father, and two of his grandparents. 33-year-old Norli Akmar Hamid and her husband Razahan Zamani uh, from Malaysia were on their way to a delayed honeymoon in Beijing. So as far as the passengers go, it's said that investigators in, uh, studied everybody pretty uh, thoroughly and they determined that no one on that plane um, really had any motive or anything in their background that linked them to any nefarious activities. Um, so basically the passengers were cleared. There were numerous searches of the Malacca Strait, the Andaman Sea, uh, the South China Sea, and most notably the Indian Ocean, which is where we, we know the plane to have been uh, in its final hours, or at least that's the prevailing theory. And the fuselage of MH370 was never located, along with the 239 people on board who are still missing, uh, although presumed deceased. Uh, there wasn't any trace of the plane found until July of 2015. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, these pieces were found on various uh, coasts in Africa, which are consistent with the the drift currents in the South Indian Oceans. There's actually a great video about this available on YouTube by Lamino. I'm sure many of you have heard of him before, um, but he did a great video on MH370, and I will certainly link that uh, on our website. Um, but anyway, according to him, uh, there have been 32 pieces of wreckage total that were found from MH370, and if I'm remembering correctly, um, only a few of these were actually confirmed to be from the plane, whereas there are some others that are highly likely to be from the plane. So there are so many factors in this case, and it's so complex, it's almost difficult to pick a spot to start when you're trying to figure out what happened here. While investigators can't say for sure what happened aboard MH370 that night, 
What they have said is that they believe this was an act that was carried out intentionally by somebody that was very skilled. And for that reason, they have focused on the captain, 53-year-old uh, Zahari Ahmed Shah. This has been kind of a subject of controversy on the internet and uh, in Malaysia in general, uh, because his family has denied that this would be something, this, that this would ever be something that he would do, um, that he wasn't capable of, of doing something like this. Of course, if he was responsible, that would mean he essentially murdered everyone on the plane before he committed suicide, which is a very grim um, thing to think about, especially for a grieving family. But we're going to delve more into the theory side of MH370 in the next episode. What I'm really trying to do in episode one here is just lay out everything that happened uh, so people can kind of get a sense of this mystery, what went down, and kind of develop their own uh, thoughts about it. So my first initial thought when thinking about all the events of that night. Uh, obviously, the first thing that went wrong was the loss of communication and then the subsequent turn back towards Malaysia. So this on its own, you could, you could attribute to a number of things. So there's an in-flight emergency. Pilots are taught to aviate, navigate, communicate. So or is it navigate, aviate, communicate? Let me look that up real quick. Right, so it's aviate, navigate, communicate, which, of course, is pretty self-explanatory, but I guess it basically means, you know, if you're faced with a problem, you want to first fly the, fly the airplane, um, deal with that, then you want to navigate to safety, then you want to communicate with air traffic control what's going on. Um, as we know, there were no communications with air traffic control uh, beyond that initial goodnight MH370 radio call by the captain. So what we can deduce from that is either somebody wanted to stop the communication or there was an emergency that prevented them from communicating. Uh, we saw this with Air France 447 in I believe it was June of 2009. That was the plane, for those of you that don't remember, that went down over the Atlantic Ocean. It was a flight from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, France. There was no distress call. It simply vanished from radar. Basically, two years it was discovered. Uh, the black boxes were discovered in the ocean and it was determined to be um, a pilot error that caused the crash. And that's a whole other thing. Um, you can look into that if you want. Um, but in that situation, the pilots were very stressed out, and they did not relay anything to air traffic control because it seemed like they were so focused on trying to solve the problem on their own. Um, did something like that happen to MH370? Investigators, you know, looked at this, looked at the possibility, well, what would cause, cause the aircraft to lose communication um, but not lose its ability to fly because, as we know, the plane continued on for hours after this happened. 
Uh, one other thing that people have brought up is that of hypoxia, which is essentially, as, as everyone probably knows, um, a plane is equipped with air, uh, air pressurization tools because you can't breathe at 31,000 feet or cruising altitude uh, because the air is too thin. So there are systems on board that make the air in a plane breathable, and that's why uh, planes have oxygen masks, because if that pressure is lost, um, passengers use the oxygen masks to breathe until pilots are able to descend to uh, a more breathable altitude. Uh, and there have been several cases, well, I don't want to say several, there have been cases of planes that this system have, has failed on, albeit rare. Um, a notable one is Helios Airways in 2005. There was a, an issue with that plane, and I forget exactly the technical reason behind it, but essentially the system to pressurize the air in the plane failed. And what happened was you know, the plane took off and the pilots were confused at the warning they received and that's pretty much the first sign when your, your body's being starved of oxygen is you start to lose, lose sense of things around you, you become confused. So eventually, as you can imagine, communication with this plane stopped. Uh, the Air Force scrambled up fighter jets to trail the plane and try to get an idea of what was going on. And what they saw were passengers slumped over in their seats, their oxygen masks were hanging down, and they were able to deduce from this that the plane suffered from a loss of cabin pressure, uh, the system failed, and the pilots did not correct it in time. So everybody basically suffocated on the plane. I know it's very grim, uh, it's very sad. The plane eventually ran out of fuel and then crashed into, I believe it was a, either a field or a mountainside uh, in Greece. Um, so anyway, what does this have to do with MH370? A lot of people have thought this could be a possibility because the plane was airborne for hours and some have speculated that at the end of flight, the reason the plane crashed was because it ran out of fuel. The, the route to Beijing was only supposed to be five and a half hours, and I think they had enough fuel on board to fly seven hours, and that's exactly how long they flew for. So, I mean, one could, could deduce that the reason the plane was no longer airborne is not because somebody landed it, uh, but because it crashed and ran out of fuel. We'll cover that more in the theory section. But um, there are a few problems with this. And the first is that beyond the loss of communication, there were multiple turns made by somebody on board. So let's talk about that first turn back. That was a, a pretty sharp turn. As we know, it kind of went slightly to the right, and then there was a very sharp turn back, back over Malaysia. And this turn was not something the autopilot could have done. Because of the sharpness of the turn, it was determined that whoever was flying the plane did this manually. So somebody was in control of the plane on that initial turn back. For the following two turns, it was determined that 
they could have been done manually or they could have been done um, by autopilot. However, either way, if it was a situation where the autopilot made these turns, somebody would have had to put in those, those coordinates. Somebody would have had to, to instruct the plane's GPS to fly and make those turns. So what we do know is after the loss of communication, there was somebody in control, at least for those two turns up until the final turn towards the southern Indian Ocean. We have so much more to talk about when it comes to MH370. I could talk for days and hours about this, um, but unfortunately we've run out of time for this episode. Um, next time, we're going to get into some other stuff. The pilots. Who were Zahari Ahmad Shah and Farik Abdul Hamid? What kind of lives did they lead? We'll talk facts. We'll talk rumors. And most of all, we're going to discuss all the theories on this case. I've read all your questions. I will do my best to cover all of that on episode two. What my plan is for now is to do episode two as a part two to MH370. And then I'll move into some other cases I want to cover. And I would love to hear suggestions from you. If there's something you want me to talk about, you can leave me a comment on Instagram at 143mysteries. You can email me at 143mysteries at gmail.com. I already have several in my mind that I want to talk about. Uh, they may be your favorites, too. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I will be posting all my sources for today's episode and future episodes on 143mysteries.com. Uh, if I mentioned another flight today, uh, another flight incident, um, or other videos, I will share that on the website as well, um, as well as further reading and further videos on MH370. MH uh, so be sure to check that out. I'll be posting all about MH370, including the plane's route that fateful night on my Instagram page, at 143mysteries. I'm still trying to figure out how the world of podcasts work. So while I get all that sorted out, uh, please consider subscribing to me here on this channel. This is where I will post all future episodes first and foremost. Uh, and hopefully I can figure it out and get on iTunes or something like that. But please check here for future episodes and smash that like button. I watch a lot of YouTube and I've always wanted to say that. Finally, I want to say thank you to everyone who gave this a listen. I really appreciate it. Please be kind in your comments. This is new to me, and I'm just trying it out. I'm just a person who loves unsolved mysteries, and I love discussing them. So please uh, come say hi to me on any of the platforms I mentioned. Uh, appreciate you giving some time to 1 minute and 43 seconds, and I will get part two to you soon. Cheers! This podcast has been approved by Skipper the Cat. Right, Skippy?